0: Alright, the sheet that is coming around is our text for tonight. Um, I wanted to print this out again because I believe there is so much here and I wanted to be clear about what is being said. Uh, a couple weeks ago we were in the end of chapter 3 and I made this claim, which I think is most likely the case, that the end of chapter, t- chapter 3 might be... Um, the biggest paragraph in the Bible, but, but our section tonight might be, might be the most, um, I don't know, connecting paragraph in the Bible, chapter in the Bible or section in the Bible in terms of connecting, um, what is really taking place in our justification. And so we're really hoping you, this sinks in, um, so I told you a couple weeks ago about a story of when my, my my daughter was born and we went to an ultrasound appointment she was about four weeks out from being due um, it was just a normal appointment and it went from that to meeting with our doctor to being sent over to the hospital to being hooked up to oh the doctor's coming to deliver your baby all within like an hour and a half time and so there you know I'm I'm sitting outside the the surgery room dressed in full full scrubs, going, what is happening? And I go in, baby's delivered, and the doctor says, good news. She's fine, she's okay, she's good. And there was great relief. And then I got to hold her 5-pound, 12-ounce baby um, and cut her umbilical cord. And so the, the reality of holding a baby and for the next several hours and, and really several days, it began to sink in. Like, I have a child. Um, is this, like, do they know that this is ours? Do they know, like, what we're supposed to do with this? Because I don't know if we know what's, what we're supposed to do with this. But there's this, have you ever had one of those moments where reality begins to sink in? That's what I'm hoping happens with our text tonight. That when we really get to see... um the the implications of what Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection um, have done in our life, I think I, I hope there's a connection there. I hope there's some some reality that sinks in, our, because we're going to look at, um, at at six different ways in which um, this the justification by faith and, and the implications of that, and what it means in our life, and it's gonna it's big words. It's words that. Aren't technical like propitiation? That's a that's a technical term. It's a great word, but it's not really a word that we use and connect with. But words like peace, words like grace, words like hope, and love those are words that we know, and those are the words that Paul is going to use to describe it here. So let's jump in. Actually, I'm going to pray, and then we'll start in with the first verse. initiator of grace, giver of hope, um, God of peace, we come to you tonight and we ask that you would speak, that you would reveal, that you would help us to to connect with what you're saying. God, that you would um, show us personally, what Christ's death and and resurrection means for us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. So this anytime this this word therefore is a clue that a a, a new thought is taking place. Kind of a a change in, in pattern, if you will. And so really from here through the rest of chapter 8 is, is even more of a, a, a unified thing. And so he uses the word justify. We've talked about this word. Um, last week I said that the good news is that God is making everything right through King Jesus. And, and what I mean by making everything right is this idea of um, righteousness. God's righteousness is, is happening. And righteousness and justification, justice, are, are related, are essentially the same word. And so he says, we are justified by faith. In other words, we are put in right relationship with God. And I, and I defined faith as allegiance. So we are put in right relationship with God by allegiance with Jesus, by allegiance to Jesus. And, and so the first result of this justification that he lists here is peace with God. We have peace with God. Uh, it's a present, it's present in us instantly. The moment those of you who've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, who've pledged your allegiance to Jesus, it's instant. And this peace, peace with God is something that we need. It's something we need when we experience things like guilt and shame um, from living contrary to to God's ways and God's commands. It's 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 what we need when we experience kind of a, an emptiness in, within ourselves when we kind of make life all about us. Um, it's this, this turmoil inside of us that, that is, can only be taken away by Jesus. And so Paul is saying, like, listen, by being justified in Christ, you have peace with God. That's a big deal. You have peace with God. Next one. He says, Through Him... We've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So through Jesus, we've obtained access. So the second thing we have is we stand in God's continuous grace. And that means a couple things. First of all, it says that we have access by faith. So this word access actually is an interesting word. It's better translated introduction. The word access really kind of puts more ownership on us than we deserve. Access is kind of like there's a door open and you can just walk into it whenever you want. And that's not that's not what's being described here. It's more of you're being introduced to something new. And and you have to be introduced to it. You need an introducer, and his name is Jesus. And so the emphasis is on Christ's activity, not on ours. So we have access by faith. And also this word is a it's a verb in the present tense, which you know I'm sure you guys know what that means. I didn't know what that means. Here's what it means. It means that it's, this past act is, has, has ongoing result. It's a past action that has ongoing result. So it's, it's continuous. And it says we stand firm in it. And so it's not a, a once in a while approach to God or an occasional audience with God, this, this grace that we have. No, this God, God's grace is a place where we have taken up residence. There's, there's some permanency here. So, this grace that you have by being justified by faith, this grace in God's presence, this grace that you get to stand before God in, um, you have access to it. You've been introduced to Him and it's, and it's continuous. And it also should lead us to rejoice. And so it says in the next part, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And so, the third thing we have as a result of our justification is we have greater hope in God. Now, the grace that Paul's describing here, that we stand in because of the gift of Jesus it leads us to rejoice. The word literally means boast. Some of your translations might even have the word boast in it. Um, and we boast in this hope of the glory of God. So what does he mean by that? I, what I believe he means is, is when a person has experienced this peace with God, um, when a person has, has experienced this grace, this continuous grace before, God's, before God and in His presence, um, then, then I think what happens is they are their eyes are opened to the reality of which we were created for, which is to bring glory to God. And so, they now have hope in God's glory being revealed. And so, I don't know if you can can remember a time when you recognized, yeah, I do want to live for God's glory. I think that's that's a big sign. That's something that's changed. Um, and it says. Not only do we hope in the glory of God, but we can also see suffering. And the word suffering is, is, is really more talking about outside pressure, um, not, not inner turmoil, not having a bad day. It's not that kind of pressure. It's, he's describing. They're describing real um, tribulation, real um, persecution, real outside pressure. But he's saying because, because you have this peace, because you have this grace, you have hope that that really raises you above circumstances. It transcends your current circumstances and helps you see them the way God sees them. And so notice, notice the, um, the progression here that's happening. Um, when a person has this kind of hope, they, they see suffering that leads to endurance. And this endurance that leads to character and character that produces hope. Um, I love this word for character. Paul is the only one in the bible that uses it i think in greek it's it's a pauline word it's his word and it and it's really more uh, uh, this idea of tried and, and or tr- sorry tried and tested in other words it indicates something of quality because it has been through a test or through through a trial so it'd be like it'd be like you saying my my phone case has character because every time i drop it the screen never shatters it's been proven over and over and over it works. It's that kind of character, I think, is what he's talking about. This is, what, this is what is produced in us as we go through suffering that produces endurance and character, and that leads to greater hope in God. So, um, there's a difference, there's a distinct difference, actually, between worldly hope and the kind of hope that Paul's talking about here. It's not, it's not a prospect of what might happen. It's not being hopeful. It's not wishful thinking. It's the prospect of what is already guaranteed. And hope is is a confident expectation in a certain future, a certain kind of future, a a future that's been promised by God. And hope gives us this, this God's right perspective on our current circumstances. So that's the kind of hope that we have through this justification by faith and this hope it says will not put us to shame so let's continue in verse 5 and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us and then I believe he goes on to explain that to kind of break that down even more for while we were still weak at the at the right time Christ died for the ungodly and let me and then he says and then he kind of goes on let me let me even explain that even more For one will will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And then he he circles back to this idea of love. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, we have been given God's abundant love. And the reason I say abundant is because this word poured out is, is sometimes translated gushing. And there is an abundance that it's describing. It is being poured out in abundance. And so, so I don't know if you caught um, three times it described who we were before Christ. So, in, in chapter 3, it says no one is righteous, not even one. Here, he's, he comes back and he says, he calls us weak, which is literally this idea of being morally frail. He, he calls us ungodly. And he calls us sinners. In verse 10, he calls us enemies with God. Now, why would Paul, why would Paul insist on um, highlighting the harsh reality of like, who we are before Christ, without Christ? And I think it's to, to highlight ultimately and to contrast how amazing God's love is. Like While all these things were true, we didn't deserve what He gave which is, God, which is His love. So the point is God's, God's love stands in great contrast to the seemingly insurmountable evidence of what our sins deserve. So Christ's death on the cross um, not only demonstrates God's love, which is what that word shows His love, demonstrates His love for us, but it also has future salvation implications. Okay, so let's, let's go on verse 9. Since therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So the the fifth result of our justification, I believe he's saying, is that we are saved from death to eternal life with God. We have an eternal life with God. Um, if, if you were in our, our Sunday morning class, we're studying through Philippians, and um, the teacher that we're watching it on video, a um, pro- professor from Ozark, said that, and I think this is true, um, that those who kind of live really for heaven, you know, they, they just can't wait to go to heaven, have, have gotten a bad rap, honestly. The pendulum swung. There was several decades ago, It was all, oh, you know, none of of what happens here matters. It's all about getting to heaven. And then the pendulum swung quite a bit. We've had a a big focus on what's happening here. We need to change the world now. We need to change everything now. And what's happened in that, when, when the pendulum swings this direction, is we lose sight of what's been promised to us in our future. And Paul's reminding us. Um, and so he uses this phrase to kind of set it up. This much more phrase. appears like four times in, this, in chapter 5, twice in our text. And he says, in other words, if this is true, how much more is this true? So he says, we, we saw that God's righteous justice or, or judgment or wrath is, was what was stated in, in chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 2. That that, that wrath is promised, is a promised reality to those who have rejected God, who've said, no thanks God, or who've said, you know, I can do it better myself, God. And it, it, but the cross has changed all of that. Is the, the cross has flipped that and, and has made it possible and has changed the reality. So since Jesus' death for sin is what saves us from God's wrath, his, his, which is eternal death, and reconciled us to God, how much more, he's saying, will Jesus' life, His resurrection, save us to live with Him for all of eternity? So there is a... If this is the case, which is amazing, if His death on the cross is what, is what saved us and reconciled us to Him, then how much more will his, does His resurrection mean? His resurrection back to life means we get life eternally with Him. And, and we're going to come back to this in chapter 6. So again, he's pointing us back to hope. But it's not just a future reality. Because his last thing, what I believe is this last result of justification is in the last verse. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And reconciliation means we have a relationship with God. Like That's what's happened. You and I now get to have a relationship with um, the Creator, our Creator. We are made to be in relationship with Him. We are made to um, carry out the responsibilities He's given us. We are made to reflect Him and reflect His glory. And now because of what Christ has done, we can have a relationship with Him. We can, be, we can do what we were created to do. So all of this gives us reason to boast or rejoice in God. He's reconciled us to himself not only for eternity with, not only from eternity without him, but also from a present disconnected life um, from Him. So he's, he's reconciled us from those things, and he's given us eternity with Him and a present connectedness to Him. This reconciliation is a relationship word. Um, hostility has been replaced by harmony. Enmity has been overtaken by peace. So he ends this section pointing back to to the peace that we have with God and the grace that is continuously um, given to us to be in His presence. So he's pointing back to the things he started this chapter with. So as a result of our justification, we have peace with God, we have God's continuous grace, we have hope in God, we have God's abundant love. We have eternal, eternal life with God and we have a relationship with our Creator. But I'm going to close with um, quoting someone much smarter than me. He said, God justly considers such sinners in the right because they are reconciled to God through the erasing of sin and now live from a new reality th- created through the death and the resurrection of Christ and The grounds for which such confidence and boasting lie entirely in God. So that's that's the reality. That's the reality that I hope begins to sink in. So we're going to take a break, and then we're going to get up and talk a little bit more about um, why this needs to sink in. So let's take a break.
1: So here is the idea I want you to begin with as we move into this second half, and that is this, that there can be a very big difference between knowing something and knowing something. That there is a very big difference sometimes between knowing about something or knowing something firsthand, between knowing something to be true and experiencing that thing as true. So Scott talked about it kind of at the beginning of his message. There is this moment where he finds out, where he's told, everything's fine, you have a daughter. And that's a cool moment to to, to hear that word spoken to you, that objective truth. You are a father. But that is not the same kind of knowing that Scott later experienced when he's holding his daughter in his hands. That's a different kind of knowing. That's a different kind. That's experiencing something to be true. And that's Change. That's life-changing. There, uh, a freshman may know because he's been told that Okim Two is rough, but the junior sitting in that class each day knows that O-Kim Two is rough, right? Like they're experiencing on a different level what that actually means. They know how difficult Okim is, or or. The the child that's walking down the street holding her dad's hand may objectively know. like she, She probably has the knowledge, the understanding that her dad loves her. You take that same child a few moments later when her dad scoops her up in his arms and squeezes her tight and whispers into her ear, Daddy loves you so much. And in that moment she knows in a different kind of way knows what she already knew was objectively true. Now she experiences. Now she knows to a greater degree. If you have gone to church at all in your life, if you have been around anything like this in ministry at all, you probably know this truth, that God loves you. You've probably been told that uh, many times throughout your life. If, if you grew up in church, it's, it's one of the first things you ever learned. One of the first songs you ever learned to sing was, Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. It's an objective thing. It's, it's a fact that's been passed on to me. One of the first verses you may have ever learned was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And so I know that I'm a part of the world, and God loves the world, and therefore God loves me. That's, that's an objective fact. That's a truth that I can see and understand, but I believe... That as a Christian, as a child of God, that there is a different kind of knowing that is available to you. Paul speaks in this passage, Romans 5, of God's love being poured out into our hearts. That's different than a mental understanding, that's different than like a factual knowledge, a logical conclusion. There's something bigger going on that I believe he's talking about, an experience of something stronger. And he says that that, that, that that kind of knowing of God's love, when the Spirit pours out God's love into our hearts, that that leads to something in us and which, which is a hope that does not disappoint, a hope that does not fail us. That is, when I experience God's love for me in that way, it gives me this hope hope, this confidence that I am accepted by Him, that I belong to Him, that I am His, that one day when I stand before Him in judgment, He will call me to Himself, marking me as His. I can know that. I can have that kind of confidence, and that moves me to a different kind of life. Now, here's the thing, that's, that's not going to be all of the Christian life. It's not going to be every moment of your day that you're going to have this amazing feeling, this amazing experience of God's love. No, there will be days, there will be moments in which we have to believe that by faith, in which we live out the objective knowledge that we have. Jesus loves me, this I know, it's not that I feel it, but for the Bible tells me so. This is what the Bible says, and so I will trust it even if I don't feel it. And yet, there is something profoundly beneficial to knowing on a different level the great love of God poured out into your hearts. And I believe it's something that, that we are able to and called to seek. Paul prays this for his churches. In Ephesians 3, he prays that they would know the love of Jesus that surpasses all understanding. And I believe it's 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, I pray that the, that the Lord would direct your heart into the love of God. And so he, he wants his people to know this more, to, to experience this more in their hearts. And, and not just for the sake of experiencing it, but for what it does inside of you. For the hope that it creates, for the confidence, for the boldness, for the joy and the greater ability, I believe, to obey him when we experience the love like a child scooped up in their father's arms, that kind of love that God has for us and for His people. So the question is, how do we gain that kind of knowledge? How do we go from knowing God loves us to knowing God loves us? Uh, According to tax, the, the first thing is it's not really something we do necessarily. It is, it's the Holy Spirit. So he says the, the Holy Spirit, God's love, has been poured out into our hearts by His Holy Spirit. And yet, the, the question for us that does concern us is by what means does He do that? Well, what are we doing? What's taking place in our life when the Holy Spirit is pouring that into us? That's what we're going to try to answer. But before we do that, We've got to get to the bottom of this very important word in Romans 5. We've got to make sure we've, we've got our minds around what this means. Uh, it's a word that uh, has only appeared four times in the book of Romans until we get to this chapter, and then it starts to explode through this book. It w- it's used five times in this chapter alone, and then 14 more times throughout the rest of the book of Romans, and that word is grace. And Paul will begin to lean on this word, bringing it up a lot, talking through it a lot. In the Greek, uh, the word is charis. Uh, this is the word that used, and, and back then, like, this, this word was a, like, everyday normal word. It was, it was the word for gift or favor, Right, So if I give you a birthday gift, I'm giving you a charis, or, or if I'm giving you gifts for Christmas, I'm giving you charis or char- charisma. Uh, and, and so this is just a normal word for like gift or favor, um, and, and, but it was an important one in their culture, and one that got talked about a fair amount. Um, there was a lot of actually writing done around the time of Paul and a little bit before about what, what, what made gifts special, and, and what really made a gift a gift what made it a big deal? And then of course it was understood this true that if humans can give gifts then that means God can give gifts or, uh, or the gods if you, if you were like a pagan if you, if you believed in kind of the pagan system that the gods could give gifts to people too. And, and then this word charis began to in that context take on more of a kind of richer and nuanced meaning in a, a theological context. This gift, this charis, this grace that God gives to us. And it had a lot of richness to it and a lot of nuance to it. So much so that this word, over time, starting from like a couple hundred years before Paul, but then especially throughout like church history as people would start studying, this word has caused quite a bit of controversy amongst people. Not because there are some people who are like pro-grace and some people are anti-grace and people argue about that. No, everyone's always pro-grace. They always like grace. The issue is that so many people in so many different groups have, different, have had different understandings of what that word meant, sometimes without even knowing it. They, were, they both thought they were talking about the same thing, but they were actually talking about something different. In fact, um, there's this New Testament scholar by the name of John Barclay, and he traces this word charis throughout history and, and says that throughout history there's been at least like six different understandings of what this word means. Um, And they're not like wildly different, they're not like opposing, they're they're similar, but they each bring different aspects of what a real gift is to light, and depending on what you stress and which ones you really hold to can really alter your view of gifts and it can alter your view of grace. Now, I'm not going to get into all six of those, I'm not going to get into trying to kind of break all that down. Here's all you need to know tonight, is, is that it's very important that when we talk about grace... To make sure we mean the same thing that the Bible means when it talks about grace. And not just what we think when we hear the word grace. And not just what our culture has told us about the word grace. To make sure that we're not confusing our own modern day understanding of a word for what the first century understanding when Paul was writing it, of that word was. For example, one of the, like key fundamental ideas about what a gift is today uh, is that uh, one of its key characteristics is that it is something that is given without expectation of return. That is that I give it to you and, and I don't expect something back. So if I, um, if I were to say, go up to Kyle here and say, hey man, I got something for you. I'm really excited for this. I want to I hand you. This. So I give Kyle this little box here and Kyle opens up that gift and inside is an Apple Watch and he's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, I can't believe you did this, ah, it's, it's no big deal, man, just, I, I just wonder, I was thinking of you, I wanted to give you that, and he's like, oh man, thank you so much for that, and I go, oh, you're welcome, um, by the way, can't wait to get mine, right, um, I mean, just remember, okay, you owe me, buddy, okay, so I, uh, you know, not, nothing right away, but eventually, Kyle, I'm hoping to get the back, and better be pretty good, because I gave you an Apple Watch, so, um, like if I were to do something like that and say, all right, see you, remember you owe me, and walk away, Kai would go, whoa, 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 wait, what was that? Like that's, that's not a gift. If, you, if you're giving something to me just so I'll give you something back, that's not a gift, that's, that's bribery, that's manipulation. We, we actually we have a term for that. That's a gift, we say, with strings attached. Because to us... A true gift is something that is given without any expectation of return, without anything that would be given back to me. And, and, and there are many people who take that and go, yes, that's what makes a good gift when a human gives a gift. Also, they would say, that's what makes God's gift a true gift. That's what makes it grace. God's grace is something that is given without any expectation of return, without any expectation of you giving anything back to Him. That's why it's grace. But did you know that when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, the people who were reading this letter had no concept of that idea of a gift. A gift in which nothing was required. by That, 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 that was almost non-existent to them. No, no, no. It was understood it was expected even that if you give me a gift that at some point I'm going to return the favor. And that wasn't considered like manipulative and that wasn't considered like underhanded. It wasn't a bribe. No, I mean, they had a word for bribe. There was such a thing as a bribe. If you give money to a judge to try and get the verdict you want or something, that's a, that's a bribe. But if you're giving like a gift to a peer... It wasn't wrong or manipulative. It was just understood that that person would eventually want to give something back to you at at some point. Uh, In the days before uh, health insurance and uh, home insurance and crop insurance, in the days before sick leave, communities depended on each other to take care of one another. So if things go south for me, if all my crops go bad and I've got nothing, like I need those around me to take care of me. I need to know that. And so so gift giving was a way of entering into relationship. It was a way of developing community. When I give something to you, it, it means I want to enter into this reciprocal kind of relationship with you in which which I'm not expecting payback. That's not what this is. It's just that I'm entering into a relationship in which I know that you want to give and take care of me and I want to give and take care of you and this will go back and forth it didn't even always have to be equal. Um, In fact, in Roman society, like the people that are reading Paul's letters in the book of Rome, the Roman culture had a very strong, what was called like a patron client society, a patron client system, in which those who were kind of in the upper classes and more well-off, they would often give gifts to those in lower classes, or those who had less money, they would give um, sometimes large gifts to them, And, and it wasn't that those people had to go pay them back like it was some kind of a loan, but the expectation was that in giving, that you will want to also kind of return the favor to me, that that there will be a loyalty on your part to me. Or when election season comes, that you'll be supporting me, that you'll be kind of on my side, that you'll vote for me, that those kinds of things will take place. I was a patron giving to clients. That kind of stuff happened all the time back then. That was just normal and the way that it was. So the question is, um, was God's grace that Paul talks about like that? in which there was kind of an expected return for the gift. This may surprise some of you, but I believe biblically the answer is yes. When you read through the Bible, it is, it's kind of understood. We'll, we'll get there in a couple chapters. It is kind of understood that there is a return, that God expects in return. Now, we're not, let me stress, I'm not talking about paying him back. I'm not talking about earning your salvation. None of that is true. That's not what we're talking about. We'll explain this more fully when we get to chapter 6 and beyond. So just kind of hang in there. Well, but, but here's the idea. God did not come to us with this idea of grace with this gift. And he didn't just kind of toss it out and go, hey, do whatever you, all you got to do is just accept it. And then you go do whatever else you want to do with your life. Just kind of pray a prayer, accept grace, and then go leave your life. No, no, no. Just like the people back then, God gives grace to you because He wants to enter into relationship with you. He wants to enter into community with you. He wants to enter into something that is reciprocal. Even though He is always the primary and first giver and the major giver of all things, but He wants to enter into that with you. And, and, and Paul's readers would have just assumed that when they heard the word grace. They wouldn't have even thought anything different than that. That's just how grace works. That's how charis works. And of course, this way of thinking in the first century led to another key aspect of gift giving, which we'll just call um, worthiness or fittingness, if you will. That might be making up a word, fittingness. Um, But that idea was this, that the person who is receiving the gift ought to be the kind of person who deserves that gift. See, if because gifts were so often resulting in exchange and in some kind of reciprocal relationship, then I better be wise with the kind of people I give gifts to. I, I want to know that the kind of person that I'm going to give a gift to is someone who is deserving of it, someone who can be trusted Someone who is worthy of this. I want to know if I'm going to enter into this kind of friendship with Kyle, that he's a man of character who's going to hold true to his word, who's going to care about me when it's time to care about me. I don't want to just give it off to somebody who's not deserving of that. I don't want to give it off to someone who doesn't have the kind of character, the kind of track record that proves them worthy of some kind of gift like that. Now, there were sometimes gifts that were given to undeserving people. They did know about this concept. Um, But it was usually like... um, kind of generic gifts like a, a ruler might say kind of as an act of goodwill he might make like a decree that everyone in this city or everyone in this province gets is going to get a free bag of grain courtesy of the king courtesy of the governor And you just show up and we just give you this bag of grain kind of an act of goodwill and, and when that would happen they weren't asking who deserves this who doesn't who's worthy who's not no no they're just giving to anyone who shows up kind of ir- like regardless of that But but that's because it was like a generic gift. It was also understood that like the gods, they send rain on good people's crops and on bad people's crops. They give sunshine to good people's crops and bad people's crops. So, so it was kind of like that, that one didn't really matter. It, it was a generic kind of big gift given to a bunch of people. But if you were going to give like an extravagant gift... If you were going to give a costly gift, if you were going to give like a specific gift to a specific person, you were not going to waste that on someone undeserving of it. That would be unwise. That would be a poor investment. Not just that, it would be considered unjust. The illustration I like to use of this is imagine that the governor of Oklahoma sends out like a a letter kind of across the state and, and makes this giant announcement hey, we've been doing some kind of auditing of everybody's taxes. We did some fact checking. We started looking through it and and we discovered all the people in Oklahoma who cheated on their taxes this last year. And here's kind of our ruling. That everyone who cheated on taxes is going to get a $1,000 check in the mail. People would not like get excited and rejoice and be, oh man, what a gracious governor. No, no, no. They go, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's that's not right. That's not just. That's not fair. What about all the people who did the right thing? How, How come all the... Undeserving people are getting this. That's exactly how it worked back then. You wanted to be wise with the gifts you gave, and you wanted to be just with the gifts you gave, and so you would not give them to the undeserving. And of course, for a lot of people, this gave insight into the way that God gave his gifts, into the way that God gave charis, or grace. Especially in those early couple centuries, even leading up to Paul, when Paul's writing amongst the Jewish people, it, it was understood that no one is truly deserving of God and His grace. Like, no one fully measures up to God. We all know this. He's God. We're human beings. But, we also all know that there are some people who are more deserving than others. We also all know that they, I mean, let's be honest. There's a difference between a good person and a wicked person. There's a difference between a righteous person and a bad person. And God's not an idiot. God's not a fool. He knows those people who are good. He knows those people who are righteous. And the true people who are going to deserve His grace, just like any other good gift giver, God knows. And He's going to give it to the people who are trying. He's going to give it to the people who are righteous. He's going to give it to the people who are striving after Him. This is the understanding of Karis in that culture. And in the middle of this world, then, Paul pins these words in Romans 5 and blows all that up. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this respect, the kind of grace that Paul is describing, the kind of grace that God gives through Jesus, is nothing like the common conception of His day nothing like what people expected grace to be. This kind of grace is God giving the costliest gift with the deepest love and the highest commitment to people who have no business receiving like something like that. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. We were weak when he gave it to us. We were not the kind of people who can even take care of ourselves, let alone be trusted to take care of somebody else. We were weak when He came and did this, not the kind of people you rely on. We were ungodly when we did this, When He did this. We were unworthy and completely undeserving of any sort of gift, let alone a gift as extravagant and costly as the life of His own Son. We were sinners. That is, we were God's enemies when He did this. Constantly vying for His throne, constantly trying to take control ourselves, but God shows His love for us in that even though we were all of those things, Jesus still died for us, gladly died for us. And that's the answer to that first question. How do we deepen our knowledge of God's love for us? How do we not just know it, but know it? It's by looking intently, by gazing fully on what God has done for us through Christ. This is what Paul says. God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You notice that. That's a present tense verb. God demonstrates today. And then he uses a past tense to describe it in that Christ died for us. If you want to know how God feels about you in the present, you look at what He did in the past. You look at the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of your sins. Ernest Gordon was a Scottish soldier in World War II, and and you may have heard his story. He wrote this book called Miracle on the River Kwai. It describes how in 1942 he was fighting over in the Far East uh, against the Japanese in the area of Singapore when his unit, his entire battalion actually, was captured by the Japanese. And so, Ernest Gordon, he spent the next three years of his life living as a prisoner of war, doing hard labor for the Japanese army, for the Japanese military there. He was actually working on this thing called the Burma-Siam Railway in between modern-day Myanmar and Thailand, um, working there in the Thai jungles, laying this railway for the Japanese army. Laying it in the most brutal conditions possible, in, in uh, awful tropical heat with all these bugs and all these terrible working conditions and these sadistic guards who went after them and had no problem killing or torturing prisoners along the way. In fact, it said that for every mile of track that was laid on the Burman Siam Railway, 393 prisoners died, either of starvation or of disease, or of exhaustion, or if they were caught lagging behind, if they were working too slow, if they didn't have enough strength to continue, then the guards would walk over and run a bayonet through them or decapitate them there on the site. So for every mile, 393 people died working on these things. Uh, Ernest uh, Ernest Gordon himself was like 6'2". He weighed under 100 pounds by the time this was all said and done. And he writes in his book that because of these conditions that they were in and the lack of hope that was created in these prisoners, it fostered this extreme survival mentality. It was basically amongst the prisoners every man for himself. And the only motivation that anybody had to keep going was fear and hate. Fear of dying, fear of suffering, fear of torture and hatred for their Japanese guards. And, and that would bleed over into hatred for each other. Prisoner-on-prisoner prisoner crime was rampant amongst the group because you did whatever it took to survive, whether that meant stealing someone's food or beating them to take something they had or letting them die so you wouldn't get dragged behind and get, like, bayoneted yourself. You did whatever you could to live. And, and this, this culture in which these men who had been treated like animals for years then began to act like animals took over the prison. Until one day, this one thing changed all of that. At the end of each day, the work parties would come together and they would collect all the tools that the work party had been using to build the things. And, and on this one particular day, this work party came together and they brought their tools for it and the Japanese guards began to count down the list and make sure all the tools were present and they discovered that there was one shovel missing. The Japanese guard who looked this over began to scream at everybody. There's a shovel missing. Whoever's responsible better step forward and take responsibility for their actions in his broken English or in his Japanese that they could kind of barely understand. They stood there. Nobody, nobody dared take a step forward. No one wanted to step up and own to this. And so the Japanese guard began to get irate, and he began to scream out these words over and over again, All will die. All will die. He took his rifle and he pointed it at the first man standing in line, and just before he was about to pull the trigger, one man down towards the end actually stepped forward in confession of the wrongdoing. And the guard walked over to the man who had stepped forward and didn't shoot him, turned the gun around and beat the man to death with the butt of his rifle. And they dragged the body off and they gather up the men and then they go and they gather up the tools to put them away and they discover as they start to go through them that they had miscounted. Actually, all the shovels were there. None of them had been taken at all. In that moment, every one of those prisoners in that party realized what had just happened. That that man over there had died for a crime that he did not commit to save people who did not deserve it. And in that moment, something shifted. They said news of this began to spread throughout the prisoner camp and it began to revolutionize the camp. People stopped treating each other like animals. Instead, they began to treat each other like brothers with kindness and compassion. Ernest Gordon, who was actually agnostic when he went into this, actually became a Christian, went on to become a minister from this. And there's pictures of him standing next to some of the Japanese guards that beat him because he was able, because of the things that took place in this camp, he was able to eventually forgive those same men. Something had changed him. This Picture of seeing somebody step up and die in their place. To experience a love like that, that would die so that they wouldn't have to change them. It revolutionized them. It changed the kind of people they are. And this is the kind of love that Jesus had for us to die for us when we least deserved it. So here's the thing there's two different kinds of people in this room. You might be a Romans 1 kind of sinner the kind of sinner who has done things um, that everybody kind of looks at and and sees and are obvious wrongs. You've engaged in sexual sins or in the party lifestyle or in self-destructive behavior, in addictions and in tendencies that have been wrecking your life, in things in your distant past or maybe not so distant past that have brought you a ton of shame that you couldn't even imagine being able to speak out what you've done in this room on a night like this. And here's what Romans 5 tells you. If that was you, or if that still is you, God loved you enough to send His Son to die for you and make you holy and make you righteous and make you His. And you don't have to clean yourself up to try and be a part of His team. You don't have to make yourself better. You don't have to self, do some sort of self-improvement projects. You can be good enough to be a Christian or be His. No, all you got to do is come to Him and ask Him to take that from you, and He does it. Or maybe you're a Romans 2 type sinner. The kind of person who actually looks like they have it all together because the truth is your behavior is better than most people's. Like, you look around the campus, you look at the average college student, and you're better than them. Like, you act better than them, but if you're honest, you know that you fall well short of the mark that God has set for you. And either you're honest about that and therefore you are racked with guilt inside over the things that you try to hide from other people, or you're not honest and you're filled with pride over those things. Either way, what Romans 5 tells you is that God loves you anyway, that He sent His Son to die for you to make you holy and to make you righteous and to make you His. And you don't have to pretend like you've got it all together. You don't have to pretend like you're not as bad as everybody else. You don't have to pretend like you're okay anymore. All you got to do is just come to Him. Whether you know Him tonight or not, I do believe this, that every one of us needs to be reminded of this love for us that was given to us in Jesus, that we want you to not just know it, we want you to know it. I want to try to give you a chance to do that tonight. For the next few minutes, what we're going to do in here is just give you a little bit of time of silence and reflection. I'm going to have Caleb come up and and just play for us. And and I want to, as you're just sitting and reflecting, I want to uh, read some scriptures over you about the love that is shown for us in Christ Jesus. And then we'll join in a time of singing after that. So let me pray. After I pray, we'll sit in silence and in reflection for a moment. And I'll read some of these passages to you. I just want you to reflect on the truths of those and what those scriptures mean for you, mean for us today. Dear Father, I pray this simple prayer as we begin here. But as Paul talked about in Romans 5, as we just read about, that your Holy Spirit would pour out your love in our hearts. Help us not just know it. Help us know it. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 1 John 4, verses 9 through 10. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith.